inundate them with all of these social ideals about how women are supposed to look and how we fit into societies and relationships and even like even if we didn't dare think about talking about sexuality in a completely normative and like normal way um, our kids don't want to hear it from our moms do you ever feel like a hamster on the treadmill of life welcome to she walks the walk a movement i started to help women lead more inspired more authentic lives i'm sam plavins thanks for joining us Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of She Walks the Walk. So I want to start by asking if you remember that song, Let's Talk About Sex, Baby, Let's Talk About You and Me. Okay, I know, I will not quit my day job. Actually, I already did that, and I will not be launching a career as a singer. <laughs> I think it was a salt and Peppa song from a million years ago, back when I might have actually had a shot at being cool. Um, today, we're going to talk about sex. And who doesn't who doesn't want to talk about sex? I'm super excited to share my interview with the hilarious and down-to-earth Chris Carlson. Chris and I have known each other for years, and I recently reached out to her after hearing about the incredible work she was doing in human sex trafficking. I've known Chris as a friend and a social worker, but I wanted to dig deeper to shine a light on a subject that most of us don't really want to hear about. What caught my attention in particular was an interview I saw on TV when she was describing the average age of young people who are lured into a world where they're trading sex for something they need. That age is 13. I have a 13-year-old daughter. And she is heavily engaged in the online world, which is often where all of this starts. So I wanted to learn more. How do kids get caught up in this? What are the warning signs? What misconceptions are out there? And more importantly, why are we not prioritizing and normalizing healthy conversations on sexuality with our sons and daughters? So it's time for a frank conversation about sex. Chris and I get real and neither of us hold anything back. Just I'll I'll give you some fair warning. We chat about her childhood where she spent some time in and out of women's shelters and had to battle through drug and alcohol addiction. We contemplate why Gen X women were raised with sex being this shameful dirty word to the point where our moms assigned cutesy names to our body parts. Like why did they do that? And how do we engage in meaningful, open conversation with our kids to help them understand and appreciate their bodies? How do we prepare them to handle the inevitable requests they're going to get for nudes? Admittedly, this is a longer episode. I think I even left in the bits about my own lackluster sex life, so fair warning. But I felt that our conversation touched on too many important and relatable nuances on sex. So please enjoy this episode. You will laugh, but you will also learn. And that's probably the the most important thing. As a woman and a mother of daughters, I am so grateful to have had my eyes opened. So let's listen in. It's been too long. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh my God, I have pigtails in today. That was not um, the best decision, probably. Why? I'm not wearing a bra. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, Yeah. I'm 43. I wear pigtails. It's fine. I love it. I love your pigtails. 
tell us your age, what you currently do for a living, and some other random tidbits about yourself. And this is what I call the icebreaker. Okay. So um, my name is Chris Carlson. Um, so legal name, Crystal. I hate it um, because it's misspelled. So I prefer Chris. Um, I am 43 years old. Who would have thunk it because I of these pigtails? But um, I currently work as a human trafficking youth and transition worker in the spirit in Thunder Bay um, at Thunder Bay Counseling. Cool tidbit about me. I'm currently learning to read tarot cards um, because my intentions mm. in 2021 is to learn a new skill every month in 2021. I also am a weird believer. I don't believe in New Year's Eve in the way that most people do. I believe that New Year's always start on people's birthday. So I never wish people happy New Year's. Um, because I believe my new year always starts on the year that I was born. So New Year's Eve to me is February 4th. It's not the typical New Year's that normal people celebrate. I love that. Weird, love weird little things about Chris Carlson that everybody needs to know. And I love that you have pigtails and a shirt that says good vibes. That's yeah, just... good vibes only because that's what I'm all about. Good vibes, man. I freaking love you. I just love you. Okay, that was I'm also random. Um, I'm also bringing. I also brought like some cool crystals that have been gifted to me in the like last year for good juju. So we're we're safe. We're good to go, no matter what we say. <laughs> good. Crystal has crystals. That's right. Chris. Chris has crystals. That's right. Okay. I feel. I feel really supported and comforted. And don't worry. I'm here for you. That's so good. So just a piece of fine print because we're living in COVID and basically I'm not in a studio and, you know, we might hear a bird yapping and a door slamming and a kid might burst in here looking for her hairbrush or her phone charger. Bless mother of daughters. I feel you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So As I said to you in my email, you know, every woman has a story and it's sharing the stories of others that I think help uplift other women because it gives them the courage and the permission, if you will, to just own where they're at and and pick their own path in life. So you got to where you are right now, partly because of your own journey. So can you tell us a bit of your backstory growing up? Yeah, sure. So, um, Circa 1978, the coolest child was born on February 4th. Um, (laughs) So um, my mom was a young mom. Um, I do not have any idea who my biological dad is. And so that in itself will kind of open up, I'm sure, through the course of our conversation today, like some of my, um, you know, some of my losses and some of the things that I continue to search for in regards to like who I am and, you know, where do I belong? Um, I had like a really cool, um, weird childhood. So um, my mom, I would say, uh, was a super duper hippie, loving, fun, fun time having young lady. Um, So there was times in my life where um, I would spend times with her. And there was times in my life where I lived with my grandparents. And then there's times in our lives where we spent um, times in like shelters, women's shelters and things like that because of struggles. 
my mom is a super awesome lady. I do want you to know, like I currently have a relationship with her now. Has it always been easy? Absolutely not. Um, but that comes, I think with like growing and forgiving and loving um, and understanding that obstacle or every rainbow that you chase in your life is like the opportunity to either stay stuck and be a negative Nancy, no offense, Nancy, um, or <laughs> to like really like kick ass and catalyst yourself forward. And so I think kind of over the course of my life, I've always just wanted that. Like mm-hmm. I've always kind of set it up that, you know, and we have these, I think women have these like unrealistic kind of beliefs that like we have to be this to be successful or we have to do that to be successful mm-hmm. and and realistically I think I have spent my whole life chasing that unattainable perfection oh God, um, yeah. and I think more recently I've just like come to like some really cool conclusions that I am perfectly imperfect. And um, that's what makes me super spectacular. And my nieces refer to me as the Murkhorn. So I'm half mermaid. The what? Half, the Murkhorn. I'm half mermaid, half unicorn. That's how magical oh, I can I love be. it. Uh, yeah. So I'm anti Murkhorn. That's how I like to be referred to. And my nieces think it's hilarious. Um, I think that it just speaks to like a little bit of the power that as women, we need to start giving ourselves. Like I have to stop defining myself by everybody else's success and know that statistically I am a superstar because I probably should not be where I am today. Um, if you just look at statistically, this is what would happen to people. And I'm like, pretty much, I think, fuck the statistics is kind of how Mm. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of can you dig a little bit deeper in terms of statistics? So you, you, you mentioned, you know, you spent some time in some shelters and. Yeah. So my mom um, very bravely fought um, addictions and mental health in her younger years. My mom also uh, had some pretty shitty partners. I've had some really shitty stepdads in my life. So I, uh, I come from a eclectic group. Um, so I don't want to make this about her, but, um, mm. you know, like she has overcome a lot. Um, she, you know, she continues to grow and continues to learn. I think I've just pressed fast forward on some of my growth and some of my movement, which makes it kind of uncomfortable for her and maybe some of my sisters as well. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I am the kid who, it's kind of weird, like looking back how we have like these fuzzy memories, looking back at our childhood. And I remember very clearly when I was about 18 years old and I was actually in a homeless shelter at that point. And um, I remember thinking back and thinking, I don't think I ever went to summer camp my whole life. I believe that I used to go to summer camp because when my friends would talk about summer camp, right, they talked about going places, doing arts and crafts. People all slept in like these common buildings. And then my idea of summer camp was like that moms had black eyes, but that's not really accurate. Um, Mm. So I remember the first time I kind of had the inclination, like, I don't think I've ever been to summer camp and realizing that what that was, was actually like a a women's shelter for domestic violence. Wow. Do you know what I mean? But it took a long time to kind of like go there. And I was like, well, wait a second. So do you mean like the things that I really normalized in my childhood aren't normal? 
Because right. for me and most of my peer group, this was a pretty normal occurrence. It wasn't like that outside the line. Um, we were we were gypsies in the most like cool sense of the word. So we traveled quite often and frequently. So I've lived pretty much all over the province of Ontario. And then once I hit my teen years, um, I gallivanted even further. I followed in the excitement loving path of my mom. So um, I left home when I was 16, 17 years old. And I just kind of hit the road and I was struggling in a a toxic relationship myself and I just had to like get out and so I just hitchhiked my way to um, the big city of just outside of Toronto so I spent some time in Mississauga from Mississauga I moved did you actually hitchhike like literally yeah Yeah, just packed up um, hit the walked out to the highway and then just hitchhiked my way there. Like and with the thumb fun. and everything you like, you Ooh, did this right there and a backpack. Oh like, I know goodness. so unsafe. Like now I think about what I do for a living and I'm like, Oh my God, what was I thinking? But I mean, back then you either thought you were invincible or you were being invinced. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just, I knew I couldn't stay where I was anymore. I knew it wasn't good for me. I knew it wasn't, um, good for anybody that I was currently involved in. And so I just, it was time for me to go. Mm-hmm. And so I just hit the road, Jack. And uh, yeah, then I started like this a crazy adventure of like healing and sobriety and moving forward and changing paths. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So how long would you say that journey was um, where you made so- some kind of conscious decision that you were going to, you know, try and get on a new path okay so I probably actively started um using alcohol and other and drugs as a culper probably around my 13th birthday so I was pretty much using at minimum like binge drinking every weekend and using um and using drugs, whatever I was around or whatever was happened to be in the company. And then I got sober in 2009. I stopped drinking alcohol. 2009. Yeah. And then I stopped using non-prescribed prescription medicine. um, Because that at the end of the day ended up kind of being my thing. I stopped using medicines that were not prescribed to me um, in 2007 because that's okay, when so I'm trying out. to do the I'm doing the math on that but yeah I'm, I'm a I'm, social worker I'm a social worker so I'm not good at that um, <laughs> you were born in 78 so you were like 29 wait no <laughs> why can't we figure this out I don't know so go back and do the math later but okay um, so yeah so I used actively from the time I was 13 until I was approximately 18 um illicit drugs and then um I got sober in 2000 and yeah so sorry um illegal drugs I stopped using in 1997 not 2007 1997 okay. um because I Absolutely. And then I drank up until pretty much the year after I got married. 
And then I stopped drinking at that point because we were not good drinkers together. Mm. So you haven't actually had a drink since 2007 or eight? 2009. I haven't had a drink. Wow. And yeah. I know people, people who know me think I, well, and for good reason, people who know me, um, pre 2009, I used to love to drink. I was a very social, I'm a very big personality. Um, that's mm-hmm. part of my survival. It's part of my coper. Um, so it can be good coper and it can be a bad coper sometimes, but yeah, my personality is big and I love big, but I am angry big too. So yeah. I, uh, so people oftentimes have a hard time thinking of me as a sober person because they're like, there's no way that somebody can behave like that and not be under the influence of something, but it's very accurate. I can. You're just a naturally high on life person, which is, you know, it's, it's something that I've always thought about you. Like I've known you for a number of years. And I think one of the things that I've always loved about you is that you're just yourself, like unapologetically. And you're just, you just, you don't pull any punches and you tell it like it is. And I I never have to know what you're thinking or feeling because you just say it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that we have to do those things because I think that, I think that as you grow up, you know, like I was, oh, and, and even now, like, Mm -hmm. Um, I come across as being super confident, super brave and all of those things. But really, a lot of my upfront and abruptness is around anxiety. So I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to say it and whatever, whatever happens, happens. So you're either going to be stuck with me or you're going to move away from me, kind of just depending. So I'm going to switch gears. Yeah, for sure. But I don't want to interrupt kind of your story of your journey. So you've been in the world of social work. Yes. Fighting for, I'm going to use the word equity and not just equality because Thank I understand you. there's a big difference Yeah, through some of your previous positions with Indigenous organizations. And you yourself went through something fairly traumatic in terms of being a witness to seeing some very difficult things. So without getting into too much specifics, can you just tell us a little bit of about the shape of what you went through and how it impacted you? Yeah, so um, I did work um, for an organization for around 13 years, um, working with families and a bunch of different levels um, in regards to um, safety um, and, you know, just and crazy because I, I remember being a young person thinking that I never wanted to be involved in the child welfare domain. Okay. Like I never wanted to do child welfare work Uh, at the time. So I was doing some youth outreach work. I was doing some, and which is always my passion. So street work, street level um, grassroots kind of work has always been my passion. And then, but I mean, I had a family, I had um, expectations, I had a husband. And so going to work from like one o'clock in the afternoon till one o'clock in the morning wasn't working for us anymore. And so the opportunity arose for me mm-hmm. to kind of move into the office into a different um, position came up and I did it because at the time um, it was the best move for me, for my family financially. Um, so I jumped gears and I jumped into the office and yeah, there was, Not only did it bring back reflections of my childhood, but I remember as a kid 
never remembering the name of any single social worker who ever came and kind of chatted with us. Um, So I Mm. know that when I took on this role, like that was something really important to me that like I wanted young people or families who I came involved with, like to always feel super supported and super secured. Um, And I have a very different style, um, obviously, um, compared to um, what I think people (laughs) believe a stereotypical social worker would look like. Um, And that is one thing I will tell, I will give credit, the organization that I work for, they just really allowed you to be organically you. And as long as you were doing good work with Mm. families and you were keeping young people safe, they really just let you kind of do the work. Um, that being mm-hmm. said, there um, I witnessed a lot of trauma. I um, walked the path with many families who were dealing with all sorts of struggles and barriers and in engagement with them that often at times would maybe put them in conflict directly with me. Because um, you have to remember um, there is this colonial oppression that has taken place and I'm a settled person. So I am a, um, a, a settled person. So not only do I carry the privilege and the power of being, um, you know, Caucasian, um, but then I'm also a social worker and then I'm entering into a practice that we know has caused generations and continues to be systemically oppressive to most families. Mm. Um, so people aren't always excited to hang out with you, um, yeah. which was which was crazy. But deep down inside, I know that this sounds kind of in a weird way, but I almost like took it as a challenge um, to be like, I am going to create these relationships with these families um, where they look forward to seeing me. Even mm-hmm. though I'm a very oppressive force, I am going to be try and be funny and smart And still be able to maybe change the ideals of what people believe um, child protection work to be. I'm blown away. I'm blown away that you had that desire. And I mean, it makes sense because if anyone could do that, it would be you. Yeah. And I just, and I love these families because I related to these families, you know, like, There was Christmases where the only food that we had in our house was the Christmas food box, you know what I mean, that we got from the local church or the only gifts that were under our tree also came from people who gave those gifts. So to me, this is real life. Like it's sometimes it's more awkward for me to walk in the realm of people who don't understand that. Yeah. Like I know like there's times I struggle like in the corporate world or like even like dealing with people on a more professional level, because it's almost like they want to make problems bigger than they need to be where I'm just like, well, why don't we just do this? Like, why don't we just go and solve the problem? Yeah. Yeah. Why do we have to have 11 meetings about solving the problem when we can just go and solve the problem? Yeah. So, um, absolutely. you know, and you know, Sam, like, honestly, it's about like us coming here and having this conversation, like, being mm-hmm. able to address those things, because I think that there's times when people are shamed about or feel shame about where they come from. And I'm like, it's all of those things that make us so spectacularly awesome and like so spectacularly unique, you know, yeah. and, and I get to and I tell my 
clients. Like I tell my clients that all the time. I'm like, you guys have gifted me this amazing gift that I will take with me on my journey. Like you become a paving stone in who I become as a person, because I think more times than not, I learn more about them than, and I learn more from them than I will probably ever teach them. So today you are involved in shining a light on trafficking in our region. Yeah, so pretty specifically, sorry, domestic sex trafficking. So I want to be really, um, because human trafficking is such like a big umbrella term. Yeah. So I specialize in domestic sex trafficking. So talking about sex trafficking in kind of a local context. Okay. I'm really glad you cleared that up. And it's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. It's only recently happened that I've become interested in understanding and unpacking it. And uh, I think I mentioned to you that I got involved in another organization called Her Future Coalition, and they do a lot of work for women and girls um, in India and Nepal um, and Cambodia who are trafficked, sex trafficked, mm-hmm. basically enslaved. And it, it it blew my mind and I felt a responsibility to understand, you know, what is happening over on the other side of the world. And yet, then I saw what Chris Carlson is up to. I naively and foolishly thought, oh, well, this doesn't happen in our own backyard. And yet here we are. So tell us what you do and what you know, because people need to understand. Okay. So first things first, we have to talk about this. So trafficking um, has been around forever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, it wasn't actually made a crime in the criminal code of Canada until 2005. So that's really, really important. Um, What? Yeah. And it's also important that people realize, so back in the day, um, when somebody was looked at as um, being involved in prostitution, um, there used to be charges and stuff that were usually laid against the person who was um, probably being exploited, if you think about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know very many people who at a very young age were like, oh, you know what I'm going to sign up for? Um, you know, I'm going to be a, a sexually exploited person. Um, So we know that people get involved in sex exchanging for a number of different reasons. So most often it happens because of a choice, because of circumstance, or because of coercion. So those are kind of like the three three C's of like sex exchanging. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can happen because you independently choose it. Mm -hmm. Um, It can happen because you, your circumstance says it has to happen. And then it can happen because you're coerced. And that's when exploitation takes place. And so Mm -hmm. um, it was a really interesting journey for me when I first got here. Um, So in 2017, the Ontario government identified Thunder Bay as one of the top six hubs in the province of Ontario. The province of Ontario actually makes up two thirds of all human trafficking that takes place in our country. Um, And we know that, yeah, and we know that we make up 93% of people who are being trafficked in Canada are from Canada. So when people think about human trafficking, they naturally think about like movies like Taken and like all of these like really glorified, glamorized ideas of human trafficking, but that's not it at all. And so as I kind of continue to learn and continue to grow, there was like this big kind of punch in my stomach about some of the exploitation that as a young person, I experienced. And Mm -hmm. looking back on it, I was like, I just thought that that was just my relationship. 
Right. But that's not at all what it was. Like looking back, um, I think a lot of us, we like we grew up in a different time and age. And, you know, back when like if you think back to when you were 15 years old or 14 or 13 years old, the idea of an adult like we'll use the metaphor of Christmas dinner. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're 13, 14, maybe. And currently you're sitting at the kid's table for dinner. Yeah. Okay. You're sitting next to your cousin who's sticking peas up his nose and you're doing all of these things. <laughs> but then all of a sudden you would have done anything in your life, right, Sam, to kind of get to the dinner table with the adults. 100%. For an adult person to like look at you and tell you how mature you are and like really valuable, maybe the contributions that you would have to have at those dinner tables. Mm-hmm. And so what we are seeing is we are seeing young people. Um, so the average age of luring and recruitment right now is 13. So if I'm a human trafficker, I am looking for 13 year old, 12 to 13 year old people. That's okay. My primary. daughter is 13. She just Absolutely. turned 13. I know you're and... probably anxious. Don't worry. Well, you can rub my pink rock after it'll make you feel better. <laughs> um, oh my God. Okay. Keep going. And so, um, so what is happening is, is we're seeing these grown people who are through either through media, social media, through engagement, maybe through parents or family members, that these young people are being encouraged into relationships um, with older people. And of course, they're going to buy in because I want you to tell me one person who does not want to be loved. Yeah. One person who does not want to belong to something mm-hmm. and one person who doesn't want to believe that they are capable of something different than where they currently are. Yeah. And what no, traffickers no do is, yeah. And what traffickers do is they sell a dream and they build a friendship, which develops into a relationship. Um, so Oftentimes that's like referred to as like Romeo pimping is the most common of the trafficking um, styles. So it makes up 84% of trafficking um, survivors are usually trafficked by the person they identify as their boyfriend, their best friend, or uh, like a common friend within their, um, their social network. And would you say, Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but today with how, you know, I mean, COVID notwithstanding, we live in a digital era. Would you say oh. that a lot of this starts online? Yeah. Or, or sometimes even face-to-face. Like, so, mm. I mean, I've seen it play out in a couple of different ways. In, in my own experience, back in the day, there was no phones, right? Like there right. was no cell phones and stuff and it was still happening. So that's, a, yep. that's one thing I want to really drive home. This isn't something new. Mm. This has been around forever. Yep. Um, I think that, um, before we used to live in a, in a society that didn't have a name for it, but we also, we were also raised in a generation where you kind of minded your own business. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, nobody, my generation didn't want to talk about sex or anything no. to do with it. And Absolutely. if you did, it was like shameful and, oh my God, go brush your teeth. They're making out yeah. on the TV, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you shush your mouth. We're not talking about our vaginas. We're definitely not talking about penises going in vaginas. So yeah, like I I think I grew (laughs) up, I think also, right. It was a very shameful thing to talk about because I also grew, my mom was horribly shamed for um, her situation. Like 
Um, and I mean, I'm super lucky that my mom ended up with a, a super amazing guy at the end of the day. It wasn't always peaches and cream. Absolutely not. But I mean, um, he, he was super fantastic, you know, and he stuck by us, you know, through, when, it, when things got tough. So I'm, mm-hmm. I was super excited to have him involved in our life for um, a significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. But I think we, I mean, if you think back to the election, um, when the liberals were on their way out, and not that I want to get political, but here I go. And we think about the riots, literally, that's what I'm going to call it, the riots about sexual health curriculum. Yeah, yeah. And how... Oh, God, don't get me started. Well, I have to. Oh, I know. I think as a society, we... We, we we hear these atrocities and then we're like, oh my God, what can we do? I'm like, we can start talking to kids about sex. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not using the words penis and vagina here. But I'm like, oh, how do you think you're going to start talking to kids about sexual exploitation? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Like, how do we ask kids not to be victims at 13, 14, 15 years old if we don't even tell them what it is they need to watch out for? Yeah, well, you can't. You know, and then we grew up in this era and uh, people always get upset when I talk about this. But um, when we if we talk about like stranger danger, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we know that it's not actually strangers who are creating the dangers. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know, like we've created a, a society where we think it's always outside people doing to us. Right. But then what happens to those kids who have this distorted idea that danger can't happen within our own house or within our own family circle. Mm -hmm. And then what happens when the person you're supposed to trust to keep you safe is actually the person who's exploiting you. Oh my God. I have goosebumps. Yeah. Right. So I, I think until we can kind of get super comfortable talking about healthy sexuality, like sexuality is okay. What? Yes. It's true. And having a yes. healthy idea and a healthy um, feeling about sexuality is super important too. So I think when we start changing it and it stops being such a shameful thing, that's when we'll actually start making some progress on this. Otherwise, we're going to constantly be exiting people. We're yeah. not pre- doing anything preventative. Well, you know, I I had this terrible reaction the other night. I'm just going to change subjects, but it is related. Yeah. When... Um, we were sitting at the dinner table. It was like all of us, my husband and the girls. And my kids are newly, one just turned 13 and one is on our way to being 18. And they both think I'm uncool. And that's just a fact. Because we are. Because we are. That's right. That's right. And we own it. So somehow, uh, oh, we were talking about bullying and online and my youngest is going through um, witnessing some bad stuff with one of her friends and she had the wherewithal to kind of stand up to it. And I was really proud of her. And then we started talking about words and words that I don't want my kids to say and that are no longer appropriate to say. And here's why. And here's what they mean. And one of the words that came up was slut. Yeah. And it really made my skin crawl because back in my day, we threw that word around a lot. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you lost your virginity and you were... 16, you were a slut. Yeah. God forbid you were someone who wanted to explore your own sexuality. You were a slut. Yeah. And, 
and the idea is still somehow prevalent. This word that it's it's like this attaching this label of shame to girls and women who are sexual beings and who are getting to know their bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't ever want to hear you guys use that word. And here's why. Because that word will follow a a girl who's growing into a woman around and it will create a level of shame around sexuality that might not go away even with therapy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and we, and we think about the, the, like the way even media plays it out, you know, like, Um, If you take a 15 year old and you put them in the exact same situation, you know, their gender or their gender identity will very much determine how people label them. So true. And it's it's really really unfair, you know, and um, I think until um, there's a huge movement and we have those kinds of things addressed within our current curriculum, because I mean, I, so I know we're going to talk about it a little later, but I constantly have moms asking me to do safe sex talks with their kids. And they're like, you know, Chris, really? yeah, they're like, I just know I'm not going to do it justice. Um, so, and I always say, I will come and chat with you and your kids, but I'm talking to you and your kids. Yeah. Because if you can't even say the words, yeah. then you need some education too. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I, mean? I, I'm, I'm just, I'm having an epiphany that I haven't actually sat down and had the safe sex talk with my girls. And I've made the assumption because they constantly shut her away from me that they know all this stuff and, oh, well, and they do. So um, like there, there was a recent study that says that the, that a young person will actually um, observe their first like piece of pornography by the time they're 11 years old. Oh, well, stop and think about it though. Like think about all the free Wi-Fi hotspots that are available out in communities. And then think yeah, about that. True. We put these kids on these devices and we do it originally about safety and we do it for all of these things, but you can't control turning on Wi-Fi hotspots. Yeah, no, that's true. And then we inundate them with all of these social ideals about how women are supposed to look and how we fit into societies and relationships. And even like, even if we dare think about talking about sexuality in a completely normative and like normal way, um, our kids don't want to hear it from our mom. Oh, 100%. A hundred percent. Do you know what I mean? But is that something that we as moms create really young in our kids? Because we use words like, oh, that's your lady button. No, that's your clit. Like those are like conversations that we probably like. I remember as a kid, like I remember even as a kid, like trying to be like, okay, this is what my mom calls it, but somebody somebody calls it something different. So like, is it the same thing? It's and like so you want to, and you so want to listen to your friends because you think your friends are so smart, but you would be, you would be like, I can't even believe the things that you can find on the internet, just looking at very basic things. Yeah. And then there's like all of the shame that comes with sexual activity. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, like if you're under a certain age, you have to get your parents consent to be on birth control. But what if the birth control is you know, to create a non-wanted pregnancy because of sexual assaults. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, like we, we live within a broken system that Mm -hmm. spits words out one side of their mouth about inclusivity and equity. Um, But then we out the other side of our mouth say, our kids aren't ready for that. And I don't ever believe it's not our kids that aren't ready for it. It's us and our kind of stuck stagnant idea about our own shameful um, rules within sexuality and maybe rules that we played in keeping people stuck mm-hmm. um, that it, we keep systems stuck. Kids don't. Yeah. No, Not that's at all. so true. That's so true. And to circle back to even just the words that get thrown around, like my mother taught me that my vagina was called a front bum. A front bum. <laughs> a front bum. Bless her. I love you, mom. She's never going to listen yep. to this. Um, no. And I, I, you know, some of my girlfriends, they would call it their coochie and their hoonie and their this and their that. And I, I remember when, when we had our girls started with Piper, I was like, no. Yeah. That is called a vagina. Yeah. And so we have no problem saying the word vagina in our house. Yeah. And my husband's like a little yeesh. And I'm like, why? You like it. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's that's what it's called. It's called yeah. a vagina and it's a body part. And it's, I mean, biologically, is it an organ? I, I don't know if it's an organ, but it's a, it's a part of us that needs to be cared for, looked after and understood. Yeah. And like, I, it, it's really funny because I know we're going to talk about my, my secondary love, my, yes. my, my primary love, which is sexual health education and like empowering people to make good choices. Um, but I, it, that came out of fear. It came out of not knowing and then me never wanting to be in a position where my young people who are in my life, my, my daughters, um, both biological and bonus. Um, I never wanted them ever to say I didn't have the opportunity or I didn't know better. Yeah. I always wanted them to have this ability to just ask and to say it, um, and to, and like, and for it not to be weird. Yeah. Which so thank God we did because we ended up, you know, having kids who's, who are beautiful and spending lots of time in bathing suits. So, um, yes, which yes. in itself opens up so many layers to danger. I'll just say on the record that Chris and Jason's girls are incredible nationally yes. ranked athletes, among other amazing qualities. Um, I want to segue to. Yeah your, your other passion. And I have experienced it. I've experienced it firsthand. I will never forget. It was a snowstorming winter night. (laughs) (laughs) And I had invited these ladies over to my house. My kids were really little, like Safi might've even been a baby still. And honestly, I was thinking no one's going to come because it's snowing. Yeah. And it, and I was like, Oh, is this going to be awkward? And then everyone came and you came with your bag of tricks. So yeah. over to you. Yeah. So, um, I, so I, I want to try, I'm trying to think of like when it started. So originally I started selling for a different company. So, um, who's no longer in business. And I will remember the very first ever, like, uh, adult novelty party that I ever went to or sex toy party, whatever you want to call it. And I was so embarrassed. I got so drunk that halfway through I passed out, like I was passed out. I didn't even make it halfway through the party because nobody had really <laughs> ever 
talked like that in front of me before. I'd never really had any formal education, um, but I'm pretty witty and I and I was pretty comfortable. I thought I was really comfortable with where I was with my body and all of those things. And so um, the lady was like, okay, you are, you are super charming. You people, you know, you, you're a talker for sure. So, um, you know, I should have definitely been in sales. I definitely missed my calling in life. They were like, she's like, come and work for me. And so I was like, I don't know anything. And so I'm a perfectionist. It is uh, one of my best qualities, but also one of my faults. And so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it proper. And so I just started like diving into like sexual health education. So like learning about statistics in our community, you know, what are things that people need to know? And as I continue to like educate myself, I was surprised at like how many twists and turns in my road. that inappropriate things that happened to me Mm. or like, or like what a distorted message that I had received, you know, about sexuality or about, you know, being born out of wedlock or about, and those were things that I think like sometimes people made jokes about, but it wasn't, it wasn't something to be joking about and it keep people stuck. And so I am a super overachiever. It's just, um, that's one of my, I say both good and bad copers. But I just started doing research and the more I learned, the more I loved because I was like, wow, the more empowered I felt like I couldn't believe how many of my friends didn't know things about their vaginas. Like it's those kinds of things that got me super passionate about it because then I was able to teach somebody something. Yeah. And then the more I learned, the more it kind of challenged me to do better. And I found like it was kind of like everybody wanted to treat it like so taboo, you know? And I had this cool, like even in Thunder Bay, like I'm not going to name any names, but try and find um, a a sex toy shop or an adult novelty place um, that you don't have to walk by buying drug paraphernalia pipes bongs to go to the back darkly lit corner um, to buy something like how do you do that as a professional woman yeah you know and what message does that send us and it always has like three x's in the name like everything they're always dark colored and they always have like something to do with drugs and I'm like wait a second, having an orgasm is something that I should just innately be able to do. Yes. And I'm having an epiphany. The X is like so sinful and it's bad. Yeah, but it's not. It's like, I like, I always say that eventually, so my eventual goal is to open like a, a positive sexual health center. Um, where we talk about like having healthy sex talks, but also it will be, it will be the most beautiful building that, um, women in their high heels and professional gear will feel totally empowered walking into and not like be worried about sneaking past their, like their students or like being forced to buy something online. Um, I mean, I know we live in a COVID world, but I mean, why? Yeah, I mean, there is so we are very one of the very few countries in the world that have any limitations about what is purchased. So if you're buying things online, you don't even know if it's meeting the basic health requirements in Canada. Interesting. Yeah. So. So, yeah, so my passion has always been that empowering women to just be like super cool and comfortable in that because you don't have a healthy relationship. I don't think either with yourself or with your partner, whomever that may be. 
until you can like really like broach that until you can feel completely comfortable in your own skin and super sexy in it. And like without judgment or freedom, I don't think you truly like really enjoy sex. Yeah. That is horrible. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. It's, um, (laughs) I, I remember at that party, I mean, I bought a few things and it definitely spiced a tired, you know, new mom and dad's bedroom routine up. And I remember going away feeling like, well, not going away because I live here in my house, but I remember thinking, God, like I'm 30 some years old. How do I not know this stuff? Mm -hmm. And is it because I've just been too busy and everything else takes priority? Or is it because I'm too ashamed because I was taught that sex is something you do only when you're married and you do it in order to have children. And so pleasuring yourself is like off the table and shameful and dirty and all of the above, you know? Yeah. And like, I always think it's so funny because I think that even like the most intuitive, like parents or the most, whatever, like you you have to think like most like masturbation and stuff like that with young kids doesn't start like follow masturbation, but it's them sitting on the arm of a chair and like rocking back and forth or them having a special blanket that's super touchy feely and they sleep with it every night, you know, like wrapped around their arms and maybe in between their legs or, you know, it happens like kind of spontaneously. And then Mm -hmm. it's the parents reaction to that, that is going to lay the pathway for how they feel about it for the rest of their lives. So if a parent walks in and they're like, Hey, what are you doing? Get off the arm of the couch. Even though it's not the intent, the impact is that what they were doing was wrong. Yes. Yes. And it's super important for us also to remember that bad touch sometimes feels good. And we need to explain that our bodies physiologically are going to respond to touch in the way that it is taught to respond to it. It's what makes us human. It's what makes us all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kind of jumping from happy back to dark. I think that those are conversations that we also have to have, because I think that that's another thing that keeps exploited people trapped is that shame that at some point it maybe felt good. So it can't be wrong. Right. I never thought of really, it that way. That's really an unwritten message. That's really a message that we have to start unwriting in our scripts. Yeah. Because so, I, I think even in our relationships, right? Like there's, I mean, it's like going to work. Like there's days you don't want to go to work, but you go to work because you got to get a paycheck. I think that sometimes we also do those things within our sexual relationships with people. You know, like there's some, pre- like, you know, the odd time, like think about being, you know, a mom and dad with two small kids or even a mom and a mom. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's our first date night in three months. And honestly, the truth of the matter is we're super exhausted, but our partner brought us out for dinner and then we went to a movie and really the probably the most passionate thing that they could probably do for you is let you take a sleeping pill and sleep throughout the night without having to worry about things. But then we internalize the message that because this happened and this happened, it means sex happens. Yes. We need to stop that. We need to stop that. Oh my gosh. I'm having an epiphany. Even, (laughs) even uh, this is probably too much information, but I'm an oversharer. So there's, there's a, there's a formula that exists in, I, I can only speak for Western society, which says that 
this plus this equals sex. Yeah. And like that, that creates this, this, um, expectation and to be straight up, I am, I'm honestly way more tired and I'd rather just watch the daily show than be grinded on. But if my husband made me a beautiful dinner and it's been a while and yada, 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 I understand what expectations are. Number one, yes, that's sad because, you know, we have a good relationship and I'm admitting that I'm tired and I'd rather choose sleep. But on the other hand, it's like it's the expectation has created this idea of it becoming something on the to-do list and becoming, yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's just, it's lost its luster in some capacity. And whether that's just a natural evolution of being in a relationship and having children and work and all the things. I don't know, but I feel like there's a formula and I feel like it starts probably when you're dating this plus this equals sex. That's right. And I think, and I think also like when we're talking about like this idea about it, I was like, remember how much energy we put into things when we first met our people? Yeah. When did we start giving ourselves permission to stop putting that much energy into it? Fair enough. So you, you know what I mean? Like, so like me and, you know, me and my husband, like bless him because he has had a challenging go with his life with Chris Carlson. Um, but <laughs> bless you for saying that. Yeah. You know, like he, he has rallied, um, but there has been times when, you know, we've just had to have, and I was like, so you rub my feet. You think that this means this, like, let's have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like what did the rest of our day look like? Like, Remember when you used to pretend to be interested in some of the things I was interested in? You'd read like a feminist paper and just like quote some things back because you knew that that was like really important to me when we were dating. I still need that guy. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I think I think that that has been some of the magic in keeping things like magical between us at times. Um, has there been rough patches? A hundred percent. Anybody who tells you that there isn't, they're a liar or they're faking it. Yeah. Um, but. I think that that is what we have to constantly remind each other. How much effort did we put in when we first started this? And are we still consciously putting in the same effort? Yeah, no, it's so true. And it's what they say, right? You know, what you put your focus and energy into expands, right? Yeah, exactly. And so if if I want to make it my mission to be like a sex goddess in the bedroom, uh, number one, my husband would think someone had stolen me and replaced me with yeah like this weird version of Sam. But number two, because the bar is currently so low, he'd just, he'd just be like, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, Sam, imagine if we put as much energy into loving and taking care of us as we did mm-hmm. into other people. Like, so if we took all yeah. of the effort that we put out into our employment and that we do trying to make our bosses happy and that we do to find satisfaction in these things outside of us. Imagine if we put that all into us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I oh, mean? Oh, I like, know. It's an so illusion. About, like you, you said, like, could you imagine if I did this, what his reaction would be? You know what, Sam? I'd be more excited to be what your reaction would be. So what would oh, your reaction I, yeah. be if I said, hey, Sam, here's four positions that are going to make the sexiest boudoir um, photo shoot that you've ever seen in your life. And it has nothing to do with ever giving those photos away, but just all about doing something that makes you feel sexy. Because when you strut different, you expect different. Yeah, 
No, I mean, you're making extremely good points, extremely yeah. good points. And when, and-, we, and when we are super comfortable and we are super confident, we design children who become that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's bang on. These things will create difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we got so off track. I love it. No, I love it. I love it too. And I, I want to be mindful of time. And so I, I have two more questions, Chris. Yeah, Number one, sure. what do you want us to know? And what do we need to be on the lookout for? And, and speak to me like I am a mother of daughters and I'm also a concerned citizen. And okay. so I'm interested. <laughs> Okay, so super important thing that young people don't identify as being human trafficked. Those are fancy words that are getting lots of money pumped into them, but young people don't identify as that. Um, Young people um, think about trading sex. So they're trading sex for a safe place to stay. They're trading sex for food to eat. They're trading sex for alcohol, drugs. Sometimes they're trading sex for popularity. Wow. So the the wording that we use has to be super concrete. Uh, like it needs to be understandable to kids. Because if you ask a group of kids, how many of you know somebody or think that, that somebody's being human trafficked, nobody's going to raise up their hand. Okay. Mm. So there was this amazing study done in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, in the state of Minnesota, right next door to us, where they do a public um, school survey. Um, of grade nine and grade 11 students. And they finally, after a bunch of years of like people wanting to um, put, like gather information about it, they were finally approved one question. And the question was, how many times, or have you ever had to trade sex for a place to stay, food to eat, drugs, alcohol, or another benefit? So when the survey was completed, 88% of all um, grade nine and grade 11 students had answered the question. That was the big one. Um, But then 1.2% said yes. Now you Hmm. might think 1.2%, that's pretty low, but that's 5,000 students in the state of Minnesota who have traded sex for something. Yeah, yeah. But if you ever asked any of those kids if they had ever been human trafficked, they would say, no. Have you watched the movie Taken? I've never been to Paris. Right. You know what I mean? They don't yeah. get it. They don't understand how it's different. Right, um, right, right, right. The thing is when you start thinking about people who are really um, targeted for this type of behavior, that doesn't even meet the most marginalized populations. So you would have to hope that those kids were at school that day to take this survey. You would need to make sure that they could understand and comprehend the survey. And you mm-hmm. would need to make sure that they had the literate capability to be able to answer all the questions. Yeah, I see what you're getting at. So are you inferring as well that a good majority of the people that are trafficked, is it sex trafficked, are already marginalized in in so far as either they are, you know, they they come from a place of poverty or they come from a broken home or um, because of the color of their skin or because of enduring abuse in the home? Yeah, so we know um, from a current study that um, 63% of young people um, who ha- who were trafficked will identify, ha- will 
identify as being involved in the child welfare system or the youth criminal justice system. So, but the other thing is, I think that we don't want to put blinders on because I think it's really easy for us to say, yes, young people who are marginalized and populated, um, they are more at risk, but I think Mm -hmm. at risk um, of being identified. Um, But I know I work with some young women who are going to school full time Monday to Friday um, and they are home before their parents get home from work and they are being exploited by people every single day. Wow. So, well, yes, in a in a we know that there is a population that is more, more vulnerable. It is people of a visible minority in our area, Indigenous women. Um, while they only made up 4% of our population of Canada, they made up 50% of exited survivors um, in Canada last year. Um, it is people on the LGBT, LGBTQ2S spectrum. Um, it is people who live in poverty or have had experience, adverse life experiences. But mm-hmm. we also need to acknowledge that it's those people who, when exploited, would have the most to lose. So if somebody, so say if you get uh, a request for nudes and you send it, um, and then that person is exploiting you by saying, if you don't send me another one, I'm going to release this to your dad's boss. Jesus. Yeah. That's how this happens. Like it is, it is a, it is a well-defined, beautiful machine that works well to exploit people. And it's horrific. It's horrific. Um, what these young people go through. So the work that you're involved in, are you are you catching these people? Um, and I don't want to assume that they're all girls. I'm sure there's oh yeah boys in there too. Are you catching them in the process of like they themselves have have gathered an awareness that they're being exploited, or are you? you know, they're unaware of that and you're staging some sort of an intervention. Like what is the process? Okay. So super important. Um, we don't exit people. Okay. So people need to exit themselves. So there is really kind of two lines of thought process in trafficking work. So there is people who are on a mission to save people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they are like, we're going to go and we're going to do this, but it, it very seldom works. And it very rarely lasts. Okay, interesting. So what we do, so my role is very much one of empowerment. So I work with young girls or young people who are at risk of currently entrenched in or Mm. have already exited either by means of themselves or through some sort of law um, engagement. Um, So I never do two people. I never do four people. I do with people. So when you uh, think about my when you think about my lens of practice, I do with my clients. Mm-hmm. So I allow them to be their own experts because it is fundamentally irresponsible for me to ask somebody to leave a lifestyle if I can't meet every single need that that other person is meeting for them. So if you think about this kind of work as upsetting as it is to us, these people got into these relationships, one, because they felt nurtured, two, they felt heard, three, they're providing them with something that society or their family or 
whatever isn't, whether that's mm-hmm. a safe place to stay, food to eat, a nurturing, what they believe to be a nurturing relationship. And as mm-hmm. a worker, I'm going to pack my bags at five o'clock and I'm going to head on home to my family and get into my warm, comfy bed. And it is really irresponsible for me to ask somebody to leave a situation unless I'm a hundred percent in. I gotcha. I gotcha. I, I am very surprised. I didn't understand the process. I mean, yeah. I, I, this is incredibly illuminating. Yeah. So I think that there is organizations that will talk about rescuing or um, we went in and we extracted. Yeah. I, and that can be really dangerous because the next sure. time that that happens, they'll probably never have the ability to reach out to a service provider again because the people exploiting them will make sure of that. Yeah. Um, number two, they might not be ready. We know that people who battle addictions, it oftentimes takes on average between eight and 11 times to quit an addiction. And we know it takes between seven and 10 times to leave an abusive, a partner, you know, in domestic violence relationships. Um, so why do we expect people who have, have been exploited since they were 13 years of old, 13 years of age to do it in one shot? Yeah. And then My when goodness. we extract them or rescue them, you've taken away any ability that that might ever be able to safely happen in the future. Yeah. So do you have, um, can you just share what the path forward looks like for someone who has empowered his or herself to leave the exploited relationship, the exploited situation and has been involved with the coalition in, are you providing any kind of counseling and or, you know, mental health services to help them understand their new identity, understand the path forward? Yeah, for sure. So I, um, young people who come involved in my service, I I mean, they can stay with me up until their 25th birthday, but the coalition is all people who provide the free support to people, no matter what stage of um, exploitation that they're currently in. Um, So I definitely um, encourage people to check out the website. So the coalition, um, I never thought I would ever design a website, but look at us go. Um, So (laughs) you can look up like human trafficking Thunder Bay, either .ca or .com. Um, and it will actually tell you like how to identify signs, risk factors, how to have conversations. But then it also has like a, a group of resources that are available. So any counseling or any sort of service that trafficking survivors might need to exit or to stay exited um, is offered free of charge. So that was on July 30th. Um, in 2019. So that was um, the United Nations Day against trafficking in persons. And so I have this amazing, like, this brainchild where I'm like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to print off 300 flyers and we're going to go to all of these businesses across Thunder Bay. And we are going to challenge them to have a hard conversation about this. And uh-huh. people were so awkward. Like, I was like, hey, my name is Chris Carlson. I'm a co-chair. I want to talk to you about human trafficking. And people were like, I'm good, thanks. And I was like, but are you? So let's <laughs> did you know that the average age of recruitment is 13? And then and then people perk up. They're like, party? I was like, oh, do you know somebody who's 13? Because the likelihood of them being un- is getting sent, like, a request for nudes or unsolicited dick pics is, I bet you, 50-50. So I challenge you to go home and talk to every 13 year old, you know, not in a challenging or whatever way, but this is happening to them. So support them. Take time to listen because it's five minutes out of your day. And people were like, okay. Wow. You know, like, 
but it, it literally comes down to that. Like you almost have to personalize it. But mm-hmm. what people don't know is, you know, somebody that has mm-hmm. either traded sex or, you know, somebody who has purchased sex. Yeah. Because when we think about who is purchasing sex from these people, we know that it's not people who don't have good sources of income because you have to have a pretty decent source of income to be able to afford $125 per half hour. Is that, is that what it is? Well, it just depends what you're looking for, but you know what I mean? There's all sorts of things. It depends what level you're looking at. Are you looking for a hotel worker? Are you looking for a street level worker? Like, are you know, are you looking for oral sex, blow job? Are you looking for hand? Are you looking for, for, uh, for example, like, do you want unprotected, you know, anal sex, um, that maybe you want to be able to apply pressure to someone's neck and choke them almost to the point of unconsciousness, because that all costs more money. And the people who are exploiting these young people are the people collecting it. I, I'm, I'm appalled that that's an option. Yeah. But anything's an option. It would be. And that's, that's of the worst course it part, would be. If anything's an option. Here's, here's a crazy segue. Yeah. My, so Piper, my eldest, she's very smart. She's like book smart and she's got limp. She's got no experience with anything. She hasn't kissed a boy. And I mean, I know this for a fact. My daughter's mm-hmm. a home girl. She's a book girl. And it just, it just is. And part of the reason for that is that it's COVID and she hasn't been anywhere in a damn year. And she's mm-hmm. 17. Yeah. She said the other day, I, I have no idea where it came from. Possibly the internet, maybe TikTok. She didn't get into the university she wanted. Probably TikTok. So she was like, what if I was a stripper? They make really good money. Absolutely, they do. Absolutely, they do. And, you know, we've seen some movies, some Hollywood movies, kind of glamorizing this lifestyle, et cetera. And I had to really be careful with my words because I didn't want to degrade an industry that is providing a very good living for for women but at the same time I didn't want to obviously I don't want to encourage her to go down that road which also comes with a whole bunch of inherent other dangers yeah and it's it's just it's such dicey territory like the whole sex industry is is dicey a when you don't understand it and b when nobody talks about it and c when it's fraught with shame and d when women are put in positions of not having power. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what my point was. I just, it's. (laughs) But I mean, because it's there, right. And so this is actually one of the most common, like kind of peer to peer to peer to recruitment strategies. So if somebody is being exploited, what we're seeing a lot of is peer to peer recruitment. So, um, so say if this person might be exploited up to 10 times a day, so their trafficker might say to them, well, I'll tell you what, um, if you find somebody else to come in, instead of 10 appointments, you only have to do three. Guess wow. how many people would do it? Yeah. And they, and very honestly, the way that that kind of starts is 
the building of a profile on maybe Instagram, Facebook. I mean, nobody, nobody cool is using Facebook except us little people anymore, but you know, <laughs> Instagram, TikTok, those kinds of things. When you are presenting an image that you're having a great time, you're at a club in Toronto, you're living your best life. Parents aren't telling you what to do and you're rolling in mad cash. You're drinking Hennessy and Patron, not freaking smearing off. And you know what I mean? As a yeah, teenager, yeah. that seems very lucrative. But For you're sure. not seeing the actual underpinning of all of the other things that come alongside it. Yeah, I my mind is just is absolutely blown. I think it's incredible what you're doing and the passion that you have, which comes from such a place of authenticity, inspires me to no end. Like I envy it. And number two, I want to do whatever I can to help people understand that this needs to be discussed and discussed in the home, discussed in the workplace. People need to be aware that it's a real, a real thing. Yeah, 100%. If you're looking for me specifically, like for the other things, um, um, my website is um, discreetparty.tv on Instagram, Facebook, discreetparty2. Um, and sometimes those conversations will happen really organically. You know what I mean? So if that's like, how do I have a safe talk? How do I have the safe talk with my kids about this? Um, please do reach out. Like I would love to like move and guide these kind of conversations. But not only that, like how do we as grown women take back our power? I, I always say our currency just because it super resonates with me. How do we take back our currency in society and stop allowing other people to define our value? I want to know what the secret sauce is for that. Yeah. That's the million so dollar I question. Think, and I think it just comes from education. Um, super great um, belly laughs at our own expense and our own learning. Um, and I think that we just instill in our children and in the future that you cannot be, you are not going to challenge or take away the right for self-determination in our young people. Their right to not only healthy sexual self-belief, but also in a relationship, whatever that looks like for them. And I think that that we just do that and we promote it through education. I'm so grateful, Chris. Thank you so, so much for your time and just seeing your face with your pigtails. I I love it. You've been a highlight of my day and I'm, I'm really grateful. So there you have it. Chris Carlson, youth and transition worker, co-chair for the Thunder Bay Coalition to End Human Trafficking and Healthy Sexuality Advocate. Chris has got to be one of my favorite Gen X women of all times. Uh, She's just super badass, loved her pigtails and her cool good vibes only t-shirt. We share the belief that knowledge is power. I definitely grew up with a skewed understanding of healthy sexuality, but I feel like I have a chance to impart this realization on my girls and I suspect there will be some eye rolling in their future. I hope you're taking away some fresh perspective. A final PSA, as women, as nurturers, as moms and aunties and sisters and daughters, but mostly as concerned citizens, we need to be aware that the practice of luring in young people to trade sex for a benefit they're not otherwise getting happens right under our noses. It's in every community. So talk to the young people in your life. That's it for this episode of She Walks the Walk. If you enjoyed it, drop us a comment wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you'd like to join a community of like-minded women, we'd love to have you. Head over to SheWalksTheWalk.com and subscribe. Remember, you don't need to let anyone or anything dictate how you live your life. You can walk your own road to happiness.